gentlemen, boys and girls, monster kids of all ages, I'd like to welcome you to episode 484 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm talking about the podcast Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'm the writer, host, producer of this show. I'd like to welcome you to a week where we're going to talk about a bona fide classic. And I know I say that quite a bit here on the show, but I mean it, man. This week's movie. It is right up there. If I had to make a list of like my top 10 favorite classic monster movies of all time, maybe even top five, this would be right up there. And I'm talking about the movie Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. This is a movie that I was shocked that I have not talked about in depth with anybody here on the show. I know it's come up in conversation, but to actually do a deep dive the way that we're going to do this week, we're over 480 episodes in and I haven't talked about this film. What am I thinking? So you know what? Let's go ahead and talk about it with somebody who's never been on the show before. He's a monster kid. He's a fan of the show. He is a storyboard artist. He's got a career in the entertainment industry, and it all goes back to the monsters. I'm talking about Ricardo Delgado. He's going to be joining me this week here on the show here in a little bit. And yeah, we're going to talk a lot about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. So Hang on tight for that. Now, of course, it would not be an episode of Monster Kid Radio if Kenny didn't prepare his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. He's going to talk a little bit about how this movie was represented in the iconic magazine. A few other things to go over this week. First of all, I told everybody that I'd be paying attention to what's going on with the Monster Bash situation. And unfortunately, the October Monster Bash has been canceled. Again, we're living in the Corona apocalypse. We're dealing with the covid the pandemic and all the safety concerns that go along with that. And because of that, the October Monster Bash has been canceled. What does that mean for Monster Bash moving forward? Well, hopefully it doesn't mean much. There are big plans to get back into the monster swing of things next year in 2021. But if you want to help out, head over to creepyclassics.com and check out their catalog, Monster Bash thrives on the creepy classics business i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes of course but every purchase you make through creepy classics helps support monster bash i know a number of you have already done that and if there are any movies any books any magazines any used vhs tapes toys posters lobby cards it's all there head over to creepyclassics.com and let them know the monster kid radio sent you their way for any other news regarding monster bash make sure you go to monsterbashnews.com Ron Adams does a really good job of updating this website and letting everybody know what's going on with the bash. I don't have any traditional listener feedback for the show this week, but I did receive a couple of personal messages. I wanted to just say thank you to Jason from the United Nations of Horror podcast. He shot me a message and I just really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Also, a different Jason, Jason S., also sent me a personal message by email. And again, I just want to acknowledge that I really appreciate it. It means a lot with everything kind of going on in the world and my world right now. Knowing that uh, you guys and gals are out there looking forward to what I do and having my back, it just means a lot. So thank you so very much. I appreciate it. The United Nations of Horror podcast, by the way, you can check that out at unhpodcast.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Another link in the show notes that you'll find is a link to a brand new podcast called Monster Study Group. I meant to mention this in a previous episode earlier this month. This is the brand new podcast by Mark Madsky. Mark Madsky is a longtime podcaster, a longtime cryptid enthusiast. And you know what? I'm going to call him a longtime friend. He's been podcasting for a long time. 
with his family and he's been doing a lot of other things as well and now he's got the monster study group podcast out there for you guys and gals to check out i found it through anchor at anchor.fm slash mark dash you know what i'm just gonna make sure there's a link to monster study group and as i look at the listing here i'm a little behind i have not listened to episode two yet which i'm really looking forward to because it's all about toho and you know i love me my kaiju films here on Monster Kid Radio. So congratulations on getting the new podcast started, Mark. Looking forward to hearing how it progresses. If it's anywhere as good as your previous work, I know I'm going to love it. And finally, before we move on with the rest of the show, I know I just mentioned a second ago we didn't get any traditional listener feedback, but now I'm going to call for some. This is a call to action. Basically, I'm starting a new project that may see the light of day by the end of the year, maybe early next year, and it involves public domain horror movies, monster movies, sci-fi movies, fantasy movies, whatever. What is the public domain? Now, you guys and gals have probably heard me talk about this here on the show. Most of you probably already know, but public domain films are typically the movies that you'll see on most horror-hosted programming because they're free to show. Famous public domain films are things like White Zombie, Night to the Living Dead, Carnival of Souls, things along those lines. These are movies that, for whatever reason, did not get renewed through the Copyright Office or submitted to the Copyright Office in the first place back when that was a requirement, or for whatever reason, they just didn't get the proper protection upon initial release. Things like Manos the Hands of Fate, for example. You all have heard me geek out about public domain and intellectual copyright and all that other stuff over the years here on the show. I've even had some people ask me to do an episode about that, and maybe someday I will, when I feel like I know even more about it than I do now, because, man, it is a deep topic. But for now, I'd like to know from you what some of your favorite public domain horror films are. Like, maybe your top three, your top five. I guess top four would be in there, too. (laughs) Public domain monster movies. Just drop me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Like I said, this is for a project that I want to maybe start working on by the end of the year, if not maybe the first half of 2021. I'd love your input. Okay, before we get on with the rest of the show, I want to let you know about the music that you're listening to right now. This is the song Log Jam. It is from the album The Return from Echo Lake from the band The Chewbaccas. They are a surf band based out of Valencia, Spain. They gave us permission to play their music here on the show. You can find them at Chewbacca's.bandcamp.com. And yeah, Chewbacca's is spelled exactly like you think it is, .bandcamp.com. Of course, there will be a link in the show notes, and you'll hear this song again in its entirety at the end of this episode. But before we get to the end of the episode, we got to get to the rest of the episode, and that's going to happen right now. picture of all time. Don't let him get me! A beautiful girl torn from the arms of her lover by a jungle beast. King Kong. See a battle between prehistoric monsters on an island time forgot. A nightmare jungle creature from the primeval past stalking midnight street. My baby! It's got my baby! the thrill classic of all time, the biggest gorilla picture ever made in motion picture history, the jungle epic that can never be duplicated. The RKO's original King Kong. King Kong. King Kong. Horror of Dracula. Dracula, the most terrifying lover the world has ever known. Who will be his bride tonight? 
horror of Dracula. Dracula, dead and yet alive for 600 years. Dracula, the human vampire who lusts for human blood. See horror of Dracula. The greatest shock story of them all now achieves new heights of motion picture suspense. See horror of Dracula and watch the fiend who rises each night from his coffin bed to seek the rendezvous that alone can keep him alive. See horror of Dracula and watch those who came to destroy a monster stay to become his victim. See horror of Dracula, but don't dare see it alone. The chill of the tomb won't leave your blood for hours. Horror of Dracula, all new and in flaming Technicolor. Annual Halloween party canceled. Haunted house shut down this season. Then come to the house party that no force can stop. The house of Frankenstein. The Supermates are throwing their annual bash no matter what and inviting some of your favorite horror stars. Lon Chaney Jr. Anyone who enters here without my permission will be considered a trespasser. Lionel Atwell. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Christopher Lee. Don't use long words, Inspector. They don't suit you. Evil and anchors. We haven't been able to contact Count Alucard so far. Peter Cushing. I've told you before there are times when you shouldn't be alone. Bela Lugosi. He's mine. He don't belong to you. You go away. Barbara Shelley. There have been seven murders committed in the forest of Bandorf in the past five years. Basil Rathbone. But of course I know who did. Haven't you heard? The monster. Kiefer Sutherland. Maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots, how do they taste? And Boris Karloff. (laughs) Plus a few party crashers. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. And some amazing friends. Dragon time! Worst thing! Let them take care of your friends, my dear. I'll take the robot, you take the wolf thing. Good. I've always had a way with animals. So RSVP to fireandwaterpodcast.com, iTunes, or Spotify, and don't miss the one Halloween party you can count on to be scary in a good way. Not the 2020 way. The House of Frankenstein. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's film, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, was first featured in Monster World No. 3 from April of 1965. This issue was later officially labeled as FM 72 to bring FM closer to the 100 milestone. The article was four pages long with four photos. It began with this intro. Earlier, Universal Studios had given us The Wolfman and Ghost of Frankenstein. Then, in 1943, screenplay scripter Kurt Siodmak brought the two famous characters face to ugly face in the fast-paced Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Bela Lugosi, who had originally been screen-tested for the role of the Frankenstein monster in 1931, at last, a dozen years later, doffing his cape of Dracula, became the creature created by Karloff. Lon Chaney recreated his role of Larry Talbot, victim of lycanthropy. A fairly detailed synopsis follows, but ends way before the end, and the article concludes with this quick exit. Thrills and action in the remainder of the story, which will be told in a more complete form, either in a future issue of FM, or perhaps as a complete picture story magazine like the current Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula. Suffice it to say that before the film is through, Larry meets up with Frankenstein's monster, 
Lionel Atwell also puts in one of his excellent appearances. There is a mad lab experiment, an explosion, a ferocious fight between the man-wolf and monster, and a bursting dam. FM did not keep its promise. Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman did appear again in FM 42 from January of 1967, and the same article was featured in FM 96 from March of 1973. It was a seven-page photo spread featuring 20 pictures with corny captions. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. No! No! Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. The Mysterium! The Mysterium! The Mysterium! You are now inside a flying saucer. Our destination, the planet Earth. We are the Mysterians. Our race is old, dying, our planet dead. Only you of Earth, you and your women, can give us life. And what we want, we take. Swooping down from outer space. Blowing up from the lower depths. The Mysterians. Creatures who knew the uttermost secrets of the atom before our planet was born. Love-hungry spacemen come to seize our women that their dying race may live. It started in the east. Soon it swept the west. The all-out horror of interplanetary war. See giant robots no earthly weapon can destroy rip a path of destruction across the land. See the forces of nature harnessed to the invader's will wipe entire cities from the face of the world. See the earth itself crumble beneath your feet. The Mysterium. Threatening our civilization with weapons beyond the belief of modern science. Flying ray guns that blast everything before them. An impregnable fortress that hides in the earth. Gamma rays that melt the heaviest armament. As men and machines disintegrate before your eyes. The Mysterious. What power can stop their ruthless advance? See the blazing holocaust of an earth gone mad. See on the giant screen in flaming color. The Mysterious. From caves and sewers come the slime people. The kill, kill, kill. There is no escape from the slime people. The slime people. Nothing can stop the horror of the slime people. For a new adventure in terror, live through the wild bloodbath of the slime people. With lust they come with vengeance and murder. See the nightmare of the slime people. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. 
and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. hot mic right and i speak from the heart for all this stuff you know you can start recording now man as far as i'm concerned like uh, monster kid radio is uh, just a tremendous avenue for people like me who grew up uh, i grew up in the early 70s and so i'm not a perhaps classic monster kid i'm more a 70s monster kid but definitely the infatuation from seven to eight years old on, it just grew and grew exponentially. So I'm always really uh, eager to tune in for each of your episodes. Right on. And I did hit record and we did get that. And I'm going to open the show with that. I'd like to welcome to the show, listeners. You've been listening to Ricardo Delgado. How's it going, man? It's going well, dude. Just happy to be here. Happy to talk about childhood monster memories and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Honestly, my favorite of the Universal Monster movies. The absolute favorite. That's high praise. It's right there. And I, you know what? It goes back to being a kid uh, somewhere between seven and nine years old and being at the drugstore. And I had five bucks in my pocket. And which Aurora monster kit do I buy? Do I buy the creature from the Black Lagoon or do I buy the Wolfman? Tough life decisions right off the bat. And <laughs> I chose the Wolfman, but to this day, it is a toss-up because those two are my favorite Universal Monsters. The Mummy is the third, and here's where my kid perspective comes into it. As a kid, I loved the Boris Karloff Mummy, but I also love the Mummy in them other movies, if you will, right? Because I, I hadn't sorted the Caris Mummy movies out yet completely, but I thought they were cool because I got more Mummy. I got more Mummy in those movies <laughs> and if you look at the Aurora mummy kit of the mummy, you'll see that in the hand that is bundled up, the back of that hand, the fingers are chopped off at the first intersection, the first knuckle. Okay. It's, it's pretty cool. So there is the first sort of baseline test of my experiences as a monster kid. I adore the Boris Karloff mummy film. I think it's fantastic. It is. It but, is. But yeah, you're it right. Gets. The other ones, you get even more mummy, uh, the more yeah. traditional mummy. You get more Karis action. You get Lon Chaney Jr. in the bandages for some of them. I mean, it's just fantastic. Well, and then there's that shot where in mummy's tomb, or is it mummy's hand where he looks at you and he has no eyes? And yeah. You know, as a kid, I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. And yeah, we're not here to talk about that one. We were here to talk about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I know, but, you know, we're monster kids. This is going to happen. It is. I'll even sort of slice my cake even uh, thinner by saying that as a kid, I was such a categorizer of this stuff. I took the creature, and as much as I love the creature, I immediately said, okay, the creature is more, he can't fight. Frankenstein and the Wolfman. He'd have to fight the Mole Man. He can't fight the other Universal monsters because he is geographically closer to the Mole Men and them and the giant mantis and and there goes my monster kid logic running away with me so well you know that makes sense though i mean the creature I, and and you know you've listened to the show creature's my favorite film and as much as i love the creature i always have a little bit of difficulty lumping him in with the others because right. geographically timeline wise he's so much later in the cycle he's he's really more of a like you said, the Mole Man kind of era, you know, uh, Deadly right. Mantis, this Island Earth, Metal Lunar Mutant right. stuff. Uh, I, I think he's a good bridge between the two, but really, I I struggle putting him up against Frankenstein's monster or the Wolfman because it just doesn't seem to 
to work. And even the, the aesthetic and the approach to that kind of storytelling is different from the 1941 Wolfman to the 1954 Creature. It's just, I love them. I'd love to see him rumble, sure, but it, Absolutely. It's, it's hard to kind of lump them all together as one. Although Mad Monster Party solved that problem quite easily, I must Good say. Good point. Respect. You know, and yet I will say that as a, as a kid, and even today, the Creature from the Black Lagoon movies, it's just one big saga. I love all those movies. For me, the Creature from the Black Lagoon design, it's the one design that you look at today, and all the creature designers and all the creature effects guys in town that I know just adore that first design because as a kid, you look at it, there's, especially there's a shot where it's holding one of the poles mm -hmm. and or when it's walking at you and it's breathing, you know, and the, there's the deep set eyes in that first design. You look at it as a kid and you go, that, that's a real animal. Like, I, I really thought that as a young man. I, I go, that's a real animal. And as much as I adored the Wolfman, and I'm going to explain in depth how much, you know, how crazy I was about the Wolfman, that creature design is just unbelievably epic and hence my aurora model kit dilemma holding those five bucks in my pocket <laughs> at the drugstore like which one do i hit the wolfman but he doesn't have a shirt you know and the official wolfman has a shirt and yet you know that creature is so cool and it's got the iguana right next to it and yet the mummy you know has the little cobra on the side and the tomb so those are my top three right then and there so right on you know, normally, and, and we'll go ahead and do this anyway. Normally, we do a round of the classic five with everybody. We got the deck of cards here, and you know, okay. this or that. Which style movie do you prefer? Kind of question. There are no wrong answers. I have a feeling that we're going to have no problem coming up with something to talk about. But let's go ahead and play a round of the classic five anyway. Are you ready to play? I'm ready to play. Let's do it. The classic five. All right, here we go. Card number one. Oh, from the Universal deck. Who do you prefer, Una O'Connor or Maria Ospinskaya? Oh, Maria Spinskaya. Yeah, that's like not even a discussion for me because she's sort of the emotional vertebrae, if you will. She's the heart of the Wolfman saga. I appreciated her so much, especially in the movie that we're going to discuss right now. When uh, Larry Talbot seeks her out, the way that she's afraid of him, but yet she has sort of a motherly love toward him and agrees to sort of care for him. It's just a really beautiful sort of relationship that they have. So Maria Spinsky at big time. I was really taken, and we'll talk about this, I was really taken by her her uh, nurturing of Larry in Frankenstein's Old Man. But. There's a scene where Vasek, who's the first jerk in in the universal you know, horror <laughs> plethora, is about to kick them out. And the way that she very regally bows to Vasek, even in the face of his rudeness to her, thank you very much, sir, we'll be on our way. It's just very old world, it's very old school. It's very charming, you know. So she's super cool in my book. Oh, yeah. Card number two. What four monsters are on your Mount Rushmore of monster movies? Okay, so we talked about three of them already. <laughs> okay, so is this just restricted to only the universal monsters? Up to you. Is... Up to you. Okay. I'm going to say the Wolfman, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Caris Mummy, and in an upset... Uh, the Sayer and the Law from Island Lost Souls, because that movie is completely underrated. Bela Lugosi, it's a small role, but every time he's on, he's completely unnerving and wears the fantastic makeup. And just in general, that movie deserves much more praise than it has been given in my book. It's like you said, completely underrated. I'm I'm right there with you. And the Blu-ray that Criterion put out a while oh back, oh my god, is gorgeous. it's so cool. 
I cannot recommend that enough. Absolutely. My kids gave that to me a couple of Halloweens ago, and it's just a treasure trove of information. There's a pretty sweet interview with um, John Landis, Rick Baker, and the legendary Bob Burns that mm-hmm. you should uh, not miss. And they shot the heck out of that film. And, and that's a film term, which means that they spared no expense and that's just an amazing picture. So there you go. There's my four right there. There you go. That's interesting pick. I like it. Thank you. Got number three. What classic monster movie is a must watch for you on Halloween? Well, <laughs> are we going to go back to Frank? No, we are. We, well, we are, <laughs> but I would also throw in there King Kong because as a boy, you know, before 1977, I would say that Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and King Kong, King Kong affected me even more as a young boy, somewhere between five and seven years old. And uh, it exposed me to dinosaurs. And uh, I consider King Kong the the myth of the early 20th century. And that is pretty much uh, a perfect film. I adore that picture. I can watch that nonstop at Halloween. And yet it's much more than a horror movie. It's sort of a cultural examination of where we were as a society back then. It's a rip-roaring adventure. It's an exposure to paleontology at the time. And the whole Beauty and the Beast angle, you know, and to this day, it's kind of hard for me to watch the end of Kong, to watch him getting gunned down because of the incredible animation by Willis O'Brien and Pete Peterson and everybody else. So uh, awesome, awesome, awesome film. So that one. Yeah, they brought one. Kong to life, man. And it wasn't his fault. You know? It wasn't his fault. So, so many of these monsters, I mean, they are monsters are doing bad things, but Kong's just, we did yeah. that to him, you know? Yeah, they did it to him. Okay, so... Right there with Kong is the Emer from 20 Million Miles to Earth, which is sort of Kong Jr., if you will. And uh, when I was a little kid, again, I was sort of into sports as well as monster movies. And I one year for the NCAA tournament, I did a Ray Harryhausen uh, basketball slash monster fight bracket, and King Kong eliminated the Emer and then was uh, eaten by the Redosaur. So uh, <laughs> the, the ultimate winner of that was Talos, who had the sword to defeat uh, the Quintipus from, it came from beneath the sea, and that's that's how that all worked out. So, okay, but anyway, we talk, we're talking about Halloween. I, I digress. <laughs> I love okay. that you called it the Quintipus, though, because that's really what it is. <laughs> it it kind of, that's, that's what it is, and it's too bad that that model does not, that puppet does not, did not survive. And I kind of wish that Ray had been able to sort of just keep his puppets a little bit more instead of sort of move along and use one for the other. But who am I to sort of besmirch the great Ray Harryhausen, right? True. Yeah. 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 So, but if I was going to say like outright scary movie for Halloween, I would say the Carl Dreyer vampire these days is, is one you should not miss for halloween that's a good one right there yeah so I, gave, I gave like four answers in one answer but hey that all know, works there thank you i appreciate it's, it's that. partly my fault because i kept it egging you on so <laughs> all right <laughs> you know speaking of king kong though here's the next question what classic monster movie would you show as part of a double feature with king kong probably the original godzilla only because i feel like that's uh an evolved pardon the pun response to kong Kong begat the release of Kong in the early 50s, and that begat the Harryhausen uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, another movie I adore as well. And then that movie kind of begat uh, Gojira. So um, uh, I think that those two are kind of hand in hand. Those two giant monster movies are were really important for me. Uh, as a kid, I grew up with the Raymond Burr version, of course, 
and then when I saw the uh, DVD with the original version, I, I was just impressed by the depth that that film was able to con- able to convey. It's much more than, again, like kind of like Kong, Gojira is much more than a monster movie, if you will. Yeah, forgive me for saying that because I think no, you're right. We all just adore the monster movies, but the 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 messages in those two films are are just pretty incredible to me. One of my favorite things about looking at these movies is we come to them for the monsters, right? But we do. If you really start to look at them, kind of look in the background, look behind what was motivating, what was going on there, you see all these different things in King Kong and Gojira, uh, in the Wolfman. You, you can see all these things in here if you really look, or you can just grab some popcorn, turn off your brain, and enjoy a monster movie. So I, I love that they're so versatile in that way. I agree, and that's why I, out of all the human characters in the Universal Monster uh, universe, I um, I loved Larry Talbot as a human being because he was one of us. He was a regular guy. He was just, you know, um, in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you will. But yet, all he wanted to do was do the right thing as much as possible, and I had great empathy. Dracula. You know, Dracula's kind of a bad guy. Uh, the Frankenstein monster, that was the interesting thing about. He kind of didn't know which way he was going to roll from scene to scene. And that made him sort of an intrinsically interesting character. But the Wolfman, Larry Talbot, I had empathy for him deeply as a boy. All right. So I'm going to dip back into the Universal deck for our final question. Dwight Fry as Renfield or Fritz? Man, right off the bat, I'm going to go uh, Renfield just because he might be the quintessential Renfield. Fritz is pretty cool, although, you know, there's the whole dropping of the brain thing (laughs) that kind of uh, throws it uh, Renfield's way uh, for me. I I do love Renfield, uh, and I do love my Lugosi Dracula. And uh, for me, when you think of Renfield, and and we're going to discuss Dwight Fry in this film as well, uh, yeah, Renf- yeah. Uh, Dwight Fry and Universal Mo- Horror just kind of go hand in hand. For me, he's sort of one of the, the perhaps the secondary version of the Mount Rushmore's of Universal Dumb. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dwight Fry, I, I had forgotten actually. It's I love this movie that we're going to be talking about, but I had not watched it in a long time. And when we started talking about it, I intentionally made sure I didn't watch it again until right before we spoke, and I forgot that he was in that. And I don't he's- know. Why- in it absolutely yeah and he his face is so instantly recognizable right and yeah, for uh, me it's his voice it. i love his voice absolutely absolutely yes yes well that was the classic five I, like i said i didn't think we were going to have a hard time coming up with something to talk about uh i have a feeling that if we are left unchecked we're going to talk for several hours today so let, <laughs> let's go ahead and, <laughs> and, and move on here so you grew up with these things, right? You were a monster kid from the beginning, it sounds like. Yeah, sort of early on, I was exposed to a lot of things at at a early age. Essentially, the Aurora monster model kits and watching these uh, films around Halloween in the early 70s as a little boy on KTLA Channel 5 uh, and... Um, for me, they kind of hit me all at the same time, and yet I was also kind of overwhelmed by other stuff like um, the books, Famous Monsters of Filmland as well. Back then, my parents would give us a dollar a week for our allowance, and a dollar had to go a long way in those times, folks, uh, to all you young listeners. And uh, our purchasing power was sort of based on um, what we had to 
come up with to uh, every week to to buy what we were going to buy. And for me, saving up money to buy the Aurora kits, to buy Famous Monsters of Filmland. I also adored the Marvel Tomb of Dracula, where Dracula was just this malevolent sort of uh, uh, incarnation. And also kind of throwing out a curve here. I spent the summer of 1972 in Costa Rica. Uh, my parents are of Costa Rican descent. And uh, we went back there, all of us. And my uncle took me to the theater a few times. And so I saw a few monster movies in the theater. And I saw a few of the Hammer Draculas. And uh, yeah, they were awesome. I'm Peter Cushing. Okay, if Dwight Fry is my Renfield, Peter Cushing is my Van Helsing. He's just, yeah, yeah, he's just really cool. And the, the endings of those Hammer Dracula films where Dracula kind of gets his comeuppance are just uh, amazing. And then that summer as well, my uncle took me to see El Santo Contra las Mujeres Vampiros, which is the one of the first times I saw a wrestling movie and a monster movie kind of coming together. And those early Santo movies, because they're in black and white, I kind of lumped them together with the Universal Monster Universe, right? So I was like seven turning eight at that point, I believe. And lastly, I'll say that summer, I was exposed to a show called Sombras Tenebrosas, which in English is translated to Dark Shadows. So, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I kind of lumped all those together, and I just thought they were the coolest thing in the universe. And so I started buying everything I could monster-wise. And so back then you could get a, the Weekly Reader was sort of a newspaper that kids would get. You could order books through Scholastic Books, and there was there were monster books called Great Monsters of the Movies by Edward Edelson or Same Title by Robert K. Davidson. But I loved a book called Movie Monsters, Monster Makeup and Monster Shows to put on by a fellow named Alan Ormsby, who I'm friends now with on Facebook. The Monster Makeup book and watching Frankenstein meets the Wolfman caused me to save the trimmings of my brothers and I haircut one summer and uh, using the instructions in that book to dress up as the Wolfman in full makeup for that Halloween. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was it was cool. That book was really cool because it taught us to buy rubber gloves and glue the hair onto the gloves and paint the nails black. And it was a, an adventure in makeup. And for one, you know, for one year, I wasn't the Ben Cooper Wolfman. I was the Alan Ormsby, Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman for Halloween. It was pretty cool. Right on. Alan Ormsby, um, you know, writer, uh, children shouldn't play with dead things, you know, which is yes, a cult classic you. at this point. Just all, all sorts of great. And I've got that book, too. I've got a copy of that book around here, too. And it's just it's I love these older books from like the 60s, 70s and even early 80s right. that, that are monster books, because I imagine it's the only thing people had these books and these magazines. And that's it. You didn't have the Internet. You know, movies weren't that's shown it. We didn't have the Internet. And, you know, um, these monster movies were only on essentially once a year or at midnight, right, back in the day. And so I remember every Saturday we would go to the market and we'd get the TV guide. And when we'd go home, I'd pour through the TV guide to see which, mon- which if any, monster movies were playing uh, that week. And when Halloween came around that month on KTLA Channel 5 here in Los Angeles, it was a plethora of monster movies from 8 to 10. Uh, 10 o'clock was the news. And when Frank Simon's The Wolfman came along, I was hooked. That's the double coupon of monster movies right then and there. You know, <laughs> two for one. 
And it was it's and it was awesome and still is awesome. You now have worked in Hollywood in the entertainment industry as well, right? Yes, I have. Uh, I've been a, a storyboard artist, concept designer for film for the past uh, 25 years. I am working on a secret Disney project at the moment that I can't talk about. But to kind of give a few low lights right off the bat, I'm part of the Star Trek franchise, the Disney feature animation franchise, the Fox Marvel film franchise uh, history or legacy, if you want to place it. But I will say my favorite memory of that time in my life and even today is the five or six years I spent cumulatively on the Universal lot so I could go off and tour and hang out on European street and just relive my, yeah, man, relive my monster kid memories and think of myself gluing, you know, and it's, it sounds silly, but I get a little nostalgic and emotional sort of expressing this thinking of Alan Armsby's, you know, movie monster makeup book as a little boy and dreaming of walking along those streets, you know, at night, well lit, lit by moonlight and then sitting there eating my lunch and working on movies that were cool or not so cool. I was grateful for the employment, but reflecting nostalgically of like, oh, yeah, that's where that's where the monster walked out and goes to Frankenstein. That kind of stuff, man. Like I really I really treasure those moments very, very much. And I remember working on a TV show that no one needs to remember. And um <laughs> Those sets were built on the Phantom Stage at Universal. They had the sets from Phantom of the Opera on the walls, you know, and everyone else on the show were looking at the sets for the sub and all that stuff, but not me. Not me, man. I was looking at the walls of the Phantom of the Opera set, and it was, again, for a kid who grew up, you know, with parents who were immigrants and um, nothing but love for these stories and movies to look around and, and think, yeah, you know, 25 years ago, I was sitting in front of a TV in, in Halloween. One night on KCET, they ran Phantom of the Opera. I hadn't seen Phantom of the Opera. I knew about it because of Famous Monsters of Filmland, but I watched it. And then there's the, the scene at the end where Eric uh, is holding what everyone thinks is a grenade. And he opens his hand and then the villagers charge him. And it was so poetic and tragic. And then thinking that here I am all these years later on this set. And that's where they shot sort of the one, the one scene in Dracula where they're watching the opera. It was cool stuff for me. A very fulfilling five years. So wow. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm lucky that's, yeah. No kidding. Especially now that that sets that they've torn down the stage. haven't they? God, yeah. The, this is not a nostalgic business, folks. They burned down the Kong wall, right? I tell my students this today. I teach storyboarding and visual development and concept design at Art Center College of Design as well. And I tell my students, you know, this is not a fair business you're getting into, you know, and w- but when the sweet moments come, you got to appreciate them. And so for me to be on those sets, I soaked it all in and I, I really, really enjoyed it. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm in awe. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have to live vicariously through stories like this. <laughs> One story I'll tell you is that I was working on, on Beverly Hills Cop 3 and John Landis directed that film. And, you know, it's not a great movie, but I had a great time working in that movie. And John and I would talk about Universal Monster movies all the time. And uh, I remember telling him, I ran into him while I was on Sequest. And I think he was doing uh, he was doing another. He used to have offices on the Universal lot. 
And I remember running into him one time and I said, yeah, I saw those sets, you know, I, but it's the Phantom stage. And he kind of leans over and he goes, you know, Ricardo, that set is haunted. And he kind of winks at me. And, you know, I think everyone <laughs> on the lot loved telling that story is probably raccoons. Another cool story about that lot is a lot of people don't know that there's a lot of wildlife on the Universal lot. And there's deer and coyotes. And I, I remember once on Apollo 13, our bungalow stunk to high heaven of skunk because it was a skunk underneath the floorboards one morning. And the more we walked around, the more it kind of stunk. And so that's just kind of one of those was sort of trivial stories that for me was a lot of fun. The idea that everyone just kind of played up the idea that the Phantom stage was haunted when it was probably, you know, raccoons and possums. So there you go. <laughs> it's more fun to think about the ghost of Lon Chaney running around, though. Come on. Hey, very much so. And and you know what? Possums make sense on uh, Universal stage, uh, especially point. in the light, right? In the light of uh, of the original Dracula. So there you Good go. Good point. Yeah. Good point. The movie we're talking about, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Uh, you already called it like the two for one coupon. It's the double coupon of monster movies. And I think as we talk about it, one of the things that I can bring into this discussion is my experience as a storyboard artist and a conceptual designer. It gives me a deeper appreciation of this film. And right off the bat, I'm going to say that there's a few shots in this film that just continue to knock me out today. And in addition to that, and of course, the great just classic makeup in this film that has been discussed by greater, more experienced makeup minds than myself, the sets in this picture are just really, really impressive and cool and uh there's a few what we'll call reuses in this film as well that are very clever so <laughs> I, I theorize that they're reuses but we'll dive into that this was the first time a couple of these monsters ever really got together and did something i know we would have a vampire werewolf combination return of the vampire later that year right but this was the first time we really saw these two iconic monsters of any kind really kind of rumbling together here we got the frankenstein monster played by lugosi who i think did a, a better job than a lot of people give him credit for i agree with that and of course lon chaney and i will say that if i had the opportunity to jump back in time I would not fix anything drastic, but I, I will storm the Universal offices and demand, number one, a sequel to Dracula, okay, number one, mm -hmm. right off the bat. And then number two, in between The Wolfman and Frankenstein meets The Wolfman, it would have been nice to have a direct sequel to The Wolfman as an interlude. And yet, and yet this is a tremendous sequel to both The Wolfman and fits in very, very nicely in the continued saga of the Frankenstein monster as it relates to the Universal monster films. Yeah, I mean, it really does kind of bridge the gap. It takes us in a completely different direction. I mean, the Frankenstein and Dracula, they're from the 30s, right? Right. You know, 31 is when the first two of those two films came out. And then you have Son, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, and you know, Dracula's Daughter, which, again, another underrated film, Son of Dracula. Very underrated. Absolutely. If you guys, whoever hasn't seen Dracula's Daughter and loves Universal monster movies, you're missing out. That's a good one as well. Absolutely. Hands down. And, and I've talked about that film before here on the show. And I mean, it's it's one that I could talk about again and one that I really recommend people check out or at least give a second chance. Yep, absolutely. And, and yet I will say that this film starts off with, in my opinion, one of the great sequences in all of these films with the cemetery in Lanwelly and that set is one of the most impressive sets in all of those films. The uh, grave robbers breaking in 
uh, and there's a camera move that sort of happens as they, you move over the cemetery. And uh, in the distance, in that set, you can actually see a bridge, which is just really, really impressive and knocks me out to this day. You know, and I've talked about this before, and, and I'll say it again. You know, years ago, I used to do like a zombie movie podcast, and I watched a lot of resurrection scenes, you know. But I will say that Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, hands down, has the best monster resurrection scene I've ever seen. Hands down. That and sequence with the grave robbers and the moonlight coming in through the window of the tomb and everything. It's just spooky, atmospheric. Everything is just perfect. Absolutely. If you look very carefully during that opening scene, you'll see the as you just alluded to, the shot of the moon going up the body of the buried oh, um, Larry Talbot. If you look very closely, he already has the Wolfman claws in that shot. And that's very creepy as well. And the shot where he reaches up and he grabs the grave robber's arm just freaked me out. It's just an incredible sequence. It Absolutely. really is. It really yeah. is. If you take nothing else away from this film, that's that's what you need to take. Just that's it. That that sets the tone for the whole thing. It it really does. It's shot beautifully. When you watch them breaking in through the top, it's a really impressive interior set. You actually see the names of other Talbots that were buried as well. Martin and Elizabeth Talbot, 1837 and 1845. There's definitely a history there. I will say that uh, there's a shot of them spilling the, the lamp and the set is supposed to catch fire. And when you then find a victim uh, later on in the story, there's no evidence of fire. But we don't need to worry about that. Okay, don't worry about that. We love this movie and you just need to go along and enjoy this ride. Yeah, it's not even something I've ever thought about. It's yeah, just, we don't need to worry about it. It, it, yeah, it doesn't just, matter. Yeah, Nothing but love here. Nothing but love. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and with, with Talbot coming back to life, I guess, you know, being resurrected, Cheney did not miss a beat. I mean, he is right back to that man who is tortured doesn't want to be alive, but doesn't want to hurt anybody else. And it just, it's such a deep performance that underlines everything else that he does in this film. It's true. And I will say that watching it the other night, you see a lot of things every time you watch a movie. He looks like his dad a lot in this movie. I don't know how to explain it. Maybe it's the first time I noticed it, but there's a few scenes, especially when his hair is sort of parted in the middle, when he wakes huh. up. Yeah, that second night, he looks a lot like his dad. It's really cool. And and I will say that those scenes later on, you know, when the constable finds him unconscious in the alley, it's the same constable that he attacks later, if I remember correctly, as the Wolfman. Those first few scenes with the doctor and the inspector, those few scenes where you sort of explain, the story explains what a, what a tragic figure Larry is, uh, are, are just really moving to me. It just sort of sets up the rest of the picture. Structurally, you could look at this film and say, you know, the first half is set around Larry's dilemma, reminding us who the Wolfman is and what his story was. And then there's the rest of the picture, which is him and uh, Maliva uh, arriving in Viseria and uh, the story of Frankenstein, the Baroness. I remember as a kid thinking, OK, is she the daughter of Henry, or is she the daughter of Wolf? And either way, as I got older, I realized she was the daughter of Wolf, perhaps, but pretty cool stuff. And she's great in the film, too. I mean, the rest of the cast, I mean, we already talked about Lugosi and Cheney, but Alona Massey uh, as the Baroness, uh, Patrick Knowles yep. is great, and you've got Lionel Atwell in here. As the mayor here, his scenes with, again, with Vasek, who's kind of the jerk in the story, 
are really cool. Like he's a decent guy. He gives the Baroness and the Doctor every opportunity to sort of try to prove themselves as a protagonist. There's that really cool scene in the bar where Vasek says, hey, let's blow up the dam. And the mayor just says, hey, you're drunk. And he puts his glass down and walks away. I just thought that was really cool. All the characters, even the people in the background, in the bar or whatever, all the characters in this are so clearly defined and just kind of adds to the reality of everything happening around these two monsters that are going to be walking through town. It's one of the things that I really appreciate about the Universal Monster movies, especially of the 30s and 40s, is that you've got these clearly fantastical things that could never really happen, but they're grounded in this sense of reality that makes them even more tragic when Larry goes through the transformation when Frankenstein doesn't understand that he just drowned a little girl. You know, these, these things that are so monstrous play so well in this sense of reality that Universal's created in, in this era of Universal anyway. And I, I just love it. Yeah, me too. When uh, Larry and Maliva arrive in Viseria, mm-hmm. there's a young lady working, I'll say, in, in Vasek's Inn. And she is the victim, uh, she is the Wolfman's victim the next day. And that's the death that sort of propels the villagers to say, hey, who's been murdering, who murdered this poor young woman? And I I just thought it was a cool scene where Vasek sort of walks down one of the streets, one of the European streets on the the lot holding this young lady and the crowd behind them. And that's, I believe that's the first scene where you see Dwight Fry as well. And that's a great throwback to the scene from the first Frankenstein with little Maria being brought to town it's it mirrors that and and kind of reminds us of of the lineage of the monster movies that we have here and it's 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 a wonderful connective bit of tissue to kind of link it all together it is and and you really appreciate those echoes from a nostalgic sense and also from a world building uh, standpoint right like 70 years before you know marvel studios started doing this stuff we all (laughs) as monster kids you know, knew that these stories were all interconnected. And it just meant a lot for me as a young boy to watch this stuff and be able to hearken back, oh, like that's from the scene in the first movie, but this is sort of a different victim. But instead of the monster killing the young girl, this is the Wolfman's victim. I just thought that that was really smart telling by the screenwriter and the director and the studio in general. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in this movie that are done in a very uh, efficient way. The movie's not that long. It's just barely over an hour. Hour, 13 minutes of of good stuff. They, They really pack everything they can into every scene. And there's no fat. I mean, they just get right to it and it's enjoyable all the way through i never felt rushed but man i would have loved to i I would sit through this thing it was three four hours long but i never felt rushed either you know no i didn't i felt like the storytelling was very economical I, i felt like i understood what was going on everything that was being presented to me and above all I respected the atmosphere in which all of this was uh, being shot. There's a few shots within the bar, the inn, if you will, that are just beautifully lit, beautifully lit. You get a real sense of connectivity with the other earlier Universal films. And I I just kind of felt like I wasn't being cheated, like I was really being presented with uh, a serious attempt to further those first few stories. Sure. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, and I think we all know that... I mean, these movies wouldn't have been made by Universal. They didn't think they could make a buck. So, I mean, obviously there's there's the business aspect to it, but they never forgot or they never sacrificed the art for that. Right. And, and I appreciate right. that so much because you're right. That bar set, that tavern set, oh it's my gorgeous. God. It's gorgeous. When they get to the ruins of the castle, I mean, that's just phenomenal. 
It's phenomenal. And I'm actually going to allude to the idea that geographically, and this is as a storyboard artist, there's a bit where Vasek points out the window of the tavern, of the bar, and then we cut straight to a really beautiful miniature Mm -hmm. of the ruined castle with the dam above, which of course is going to play a very important part in the story. But that miniature is big and it's beautiful. You could say it's it's a bigature to use to steal a term (laughs) from Peter Jackson films because Water and Fire with a dead giveaway, as you know, for stuff that, to look like miniatures, if you will. And that that miniature is really big. And you actually, as you the story moves closer to its climax, you actually move in close to the dam and you move in close to the ru- castle ruins themselves. But as you're saying, the ruin sets of that film are just really impressive because they give the illusion that there's there's a, a cellar and a subcellar and a ground level. And they explain that effortlessly, like the lowest level where the monster is uh, frozen, that is a beautiful set. That is a gorgeous set. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. With Talbot being brought back, uh, he he does look for help from Maliva. I love the way that they reintroduce the two characters together. And just that, I said it earlier, that nurturing kind of maternal relationship that she has with him, taking responsibility for him, genuinely wanting to care for him and help him through this. Uh, no ill will at all about how, you know, he killed her son in the previous film. And that carried over from the first time they met, too. I just, it's, the relationship is so sweet. And I really wish it we is. would have had more Maliva in future installments. I, I don't know how you would have done it, but I would have loved to see more Maliva. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to even go as far as to say that their relationship sort of mirror, presents the idea that she takes him in as uh, her surrogate son, right? Like she sort of transposes the love yeah, yeah. That she shows to Bella in the first film and gives it to Larry. For me, I thought it was so cool where the scene where they approach the ruins and you know, Larry's not really believing what the Baroness and Doctor Mannering are presenting, but. You know, he looks at Maliva and she says, they speak the truth, my son. That's when he buys it. And he's like, well, okay, yeah. I got, I guess I got to trust you. So that's when he was sold because throughout that story, if you watch it, Larry is, he's a tragic guy, but he's also frustrated. He's not putting up with a lot of guff, right? People that aren't listening to him, he doesn't have a lot of patience for it. He's he's more frustrated than angry, if you will. Yeah. The doctor doesn't listen to him. The inspector, you know, the townspeople, nobody listens to him, but Maliva knows him, Maliva believes him, and she has earned his trust. It's so good just to see those two together. I also like the relationships that we start to see form with Dr. Mannering and and Baroness Frankenstein. And granted, they're not the focus of the movie, but I do like the way they start to interact and the way Mannering starts to fall under the Frankenstein curse. You just can't be a scientist and be around the Frankenstein woman without feeling like, hey, I can bring this guy back to life. And and I like the way Mannering kind of starts to devolve into that too. It's subtle, but it's there. It's subtle, but it's there. It's the big scientific temptation, right? Do I, or do I not, Mm -hmm. you know? And he starts off earnestly enough. His intentions are very clear. And I think that that's one of the reasons that the Baroness sort of takes a liking to him because he's just there. Uh, He tracks down, Larry, to do nothing else other than to help him. As you move into the second and third act, there's a final temptation that uh, Dr. Mannering has, and 
you know, he did, did not pass the test, but <laughs> it, it sets up a heck of a third act. Let's put it that way. The setup for the third act is so cool because you kind of see the doctor's dilemma coming and yet you understand because of the previous stories that that's a situation that is just too much for any scientific mind to at least in that in that larger the greater storyline to resist and it's really cool where the scene where they find dr frankenstein's journal and he's reading it from it and the baroness just kind of looks at him like i've seen that look before dude and she gets <laughs> the journal right do you remember that scene he, uh-huh. and he just closes it very gently like what are you doing dude <laughs> don't do it you know? <laughs> He sees him coming all the way around the corner, you know, he starts ordering new equipment, but, you know, uh, (laughs) that's all part of the fun. That's all part of the fun. Oh, man. Yeah, no, you're, yeah. The the recognition of what's happening. You see it coming, and yet it does make sense within the greater story. Is all these characters and situations and timelines interacting and it's it's a great deal of fun for me can we talk about the monster can we talk about what lugosi did with the character but what did you think of it as i saw the rest of the universal monster films as a boy it kind of made sense to me that the actor that ended up playing the monster in the previous film then ended up playing the monster here and i realized that for a lot of people it's not uh, the ideal portrayal but i enjoy it i i think he's a cool monster i enjoy lugosi's performance yeah i i do too and i've heard a lot of people talk about you know lugosi's the weakest of the four that play you know the monster for the universal and, and maybe he is because cheney did a great job too and of course clint strange is great but there's something about lugosi i will always watch lugosi i've never seen a lugosi film that i disliked i'm, I'm right. solidly on team lugosi i mean he's he's the guy i mean he's one of the ones that I look forward to the most when I see a monster movie. Yeah, me too. And in the previous film, Igor's brain gets put into the monster anyway. Spoiler. That's what I mean. Like as a boy, once I'd seen all the films, I went, oh, okay. See, that's Igor's brain inside the monster's body. So it kind of looks like the goat, like Lugosi. And it sort of made sense to me in my, it defied my kid logic, my monster kid logic mind. It, it sort of, made it acceptable to me yeah and and even then man if you're one of the four people in this universe that have played the classic universal frankenstein monster that's like arguing about you know who's the better james bond that's like there's only a few people that played that role man you know good Mm -hmm. bully for you that's the way i look at it i do like the relationship too between talbot and frankenstein's monster it's you know frankenstein's monster at the end of the previous film is you know he's speaking he's a little bit more uh I guess, for lack of a better term, evil. I mean, he's Igor's brain, basically. He's got Igor's brain in there, yep. But in this film, he still seems a little... Like, he needs somebody to kind of help him out and lead him along and lead him around. And I feel like Talbot really kind of takes on that role a little bit. And I enjoy the way he leads him through the ruins, trying to find the notes and all that. It's just it's really sweet, almost. It's very sweet. From a storytelling structure, he is simply putting forward what Maliva has given him, Mm -hmm. right? So Maliva has given him empathy, and so Talbot is now giving empathy to the monster. And as we all know, when the monster senses that you're giving him empathy, he soaks that stuff in. He he understands it. He appreciates it. Everything from the blind man's hut to this film, like you understand that the monster is very gracious and accepting of, of the empathy that Larry gives him. And it is a good relationship. It's pretty cool. In the beginning of the third act, you see them sort of 
uh, Larry hunker over in front of a fireplace, and then there's like a low angle, low lit shot of the Lugosi monster. And by God, that's one of the coolest shots of the monster I've ever seen in the series. You can, you guys can all email me and or scold me on Facebook. That's fine, but that is one <laughs> of the coolest shots in that movie and in the series. Unbelievable, unbelievable. The lighting in this, the, the, the way lighting is, lit, is ridiculous. And I, okay, and I have to go back as well to there's the classic publicity shot of the Lugosi uh, monster sort of standing above and choking the mm-hmm. wolfman who's sort of clawing up at him. That, for me, is one of the seminal stills, publicity stills of, of that universe, and one of my favorite monster images of all time. That is awesome. Love it. I've got it on my screen right now. You said that. I'm like, okay, I've got to pull it up because I've got the Internet Movie Database listing up. And it's one of the first things that comes up when you look at the pictures. It's a great still. It's a great image. Just seeing them. Oh, it's just this embrace. But, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's the poster, which exaggerates it even more. But you know what? You know, give me that poster seven days, including Sunday. That's just an incredible image. And I remember uh, seeing that. It might have been Famous Monsters. For the first time, but yeah, that's the stuff that makes you want to go see the movie as a boy. Yeah, it that's does. It. Yeah. Yeah. If I saw that hanging up outside the movie theater, I would be first in line. That right? It's a gorgeous poster. The coloring, the way it's colored, the way it's illustrated, you just don't see that anymore. You don't see that anymore. From a creature design standpoint, there's two or three different transformations. There's the first one in the asylum, in the hospital, if you will where he transforms in, fo- in front of what I believe is a plaster pillow. That came up, actually. We, we were watching this Saturday night uh, as a group. There's a handful of us watching it. And that came up. That, yep. Yeah, they, they made this like plaster or concrete cement, yep. basically a brace for Cheney's head. Absolutely. And then there's the second transforma- on-screen transformation anyway, where he leans against a tree and transforms with his face leaning against a tree. But if you look carefully... He's already half transformed when he runs into that shot and just leans his face against the tree, which is another beautiful transformation. That leads me to, I believe, the third transformation, which is pretty much off camera where you're on him and he's starting to change and you cut away. And when you cut back to him on the table, he's already nearly fully transformed. Mm-hmm. It's and, and there's some ripple effects in that film during the transformation that really help out. And when you're eight years old, that stuff is cinema magic. Just bliss. Hey, I'm 46 years old, and that's cinema magic as far as I'm concerned. There you, hey, I'm 55, and I'm right there with you, man. Right there. <laughs> I was sitting there the other day going, wow, as I was watching it. Wow. I I, you know, I love Lugosi and the thing. I love Chaney here. I lo- There's nothing about this film that I dislike other than, like I said, I could sit there and watch it be three, four times longer than it is. Um, Me too. But it's, it's just such a, a good, solid film and a great beginning to the universal shared universe, I suppose you could say. You could say that, absolutely. And, and I would also further that by saying that it's a good way to sort of define the term monster movie. Like if you say monster movie to people, they're the classic singular films that come up. But this film sort of symbolizes and encompasses and encapsulates everything that's good and great about those films in that universe. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love that they finally brought them together and it, it holds up so well. It really does. As a storyboard artist, I can tell you that there's a couple of shots toward the uh, right before the transformation. And I, I call them Spielberg push-ins to my students. Okay. So there's one each for the monster and one for the wolfman. And the one for Bella is ridiculous. 
ridiculously cool. Oh, my God. And here I'll bring up the notion. Uh, it's probably not new to a lot of the listeners out there, but maybe a few of them that Early on, this story was filmed with the idea that the monster was blind from the previous film. Mm-hmm. And and in this film, that push-in is supposed to explain that the Bella monster, if you will, forgive me, can now see. But it is still a hell of a push-in. It's a tremendous shot. He's leering at Dr. Mannering saying, I'm in full power, dude. I'm going to bust out of here. And that's exactly what he does. And there's a camera one as well in terms of film symmetry to Lon when he's about to break out as well. And what a tremendous fight. I love that fight. I love that lab. I love the lighting. I love everything about that. The fight, is, it's pretty short-lived. I know. It's so good. It, it is. The animalistic, not rage or anger, but just this, he's an animal. When when Cheney transforms, he's an animal. And as an animal, he attacks this monster. And it's it's so well done. There's a couple of shots I'll, I'll bring uh, attention to. There's one that's what's referred to as a Dutch angle. And that's where you get the camera and you either skew the horizon to the right or to the left. And it gives one side of the image strength and the other weakness, if you will. And early on, uh, the Wolfman has tackled the monster and the monster throws him back and the Wolfman stands up and that's a Dutch shot. And then there's another really cool Mm -hmm. angle where the Wolfman climbs up on top of one of the pieces of equipment and the monster just grabs the piece of equipment and just flings it across the lab with the Wolfman on top of it. And that that shot is just awesome. Just oh. tremendous. Tremendous. <laughs> yeah, quite too short. Yeah, it is. Yes. Could it have gone for 10 more minutes and I would have been happy? Yes. It is, is it still awesome all these years later? Yes. It's fantastic. Again, we're intercutting three stories at this point. We're, or, well, four, actually. We're intercutting the fight with the monster, the Baroness and the Doctor's escape, the ticking clock of the dynamite on the dam and the crowd of villagers watching from afar, right? And so the way Mm -hmm. that those four storylines are sort of solved by editing at the end of that picture are just really, really sweet, culminated by that incredible shot of the tons of water just spilling spoiler spilling down on top of the monster (laughs) and the wolfman as they fight and first time i saw that movie uh that film ended and i thought this is the coolest thing i've ever seen in my life i was one satisfied customer at that point it was (laughs) like no fooling around and so that's what i mean is like king kong and then Frankenstein meets the wolf. This is all pre-1977, if you will, everybody. Like those two movies in those days, but especially, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, that movie. And of course, it made sense. Like everything sort of ended, though the flood destroy, came down and destroyed the set. I knew as a kid, I knew that they weren't dead. I knew that they survived because, well, you can't, you know, you have to disassemble the monster and you can't drown the Wolfman, right? You can't drown the Wolfman. It, it all just kind of wrapped up really, really nicely. Love that movie. Love it. Have I said that already? I love it. Oh, yes. I think so. And and I've been sitting here nodding along, which makes great podcasting, oh, by the way, just sitting here silently nodding along. Um, <laughs> No, I love when the water comes flooding oh into that God. lab. And, I mean, there's a part of me that's like, no, the lab, yeah, you know, I know. but <laughs> I know. Uh, but visually, it just washes it all the way. And yeah, we know they didn't destroy the Frankenstein. We, they didn't destroy the yep. Wolfman. You know, there's, we just, 
he can come back. And and fortunately, they do. We get to see him go at it a little bit more in future films, which it is great. It was great. Absolutely. But this one really kind of set set it all up. Without this film, you don't have House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. You don't have Abbott and Costello running into him. Without this one, you, you kind of don't have any other of the big monster movies in the forties anyway. That's right. Like, I think that the studio may have looked at this and said, well, you know, what do we do with the Wolfman? It was a hit. And you know, what do we do with the monster and putting them together kind of was a logical next step. And uh, it worked out really well. And obviously the studio looked at that and said, Hey, we made a lot of money. Let's do it again. So that's where, that's where I think everyone just kind of benefited from that. I enjoy I enjoy the subsequent monster rallies a great deal, you know, nothing but love for those. And yet to me, somehow this feels like the apex of that classic period. No, no disrespect to anybody. Like, uh, I just really felt like this was a very satisfying story. Forgot about the song. If we could talk about the song. really. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get to that song. That, that song. It knocks me out. I go to the Monster Bash convention pretty regularly, and okay. they always do this song at the bash. Oh. They have a guy come out in Lederhosen kind of leading the song in a call and response <laughs> with everybody. It's wonderful. <laughs> and it's just, I can't think of monsters without thinking about that song because of it. Yep. it, just, it, it it's, it's, it's tremendous. Really and also thematically, mm-hmm. yes. you know, there's a line in there, you know, basically it's a song about death. And there's a line that says, hey, you know, you're going to live forever. And that's the line that sets Larry off that evening. Yep. Until then, Larry's just kind of sitting there kind of worrying about, about whatever uh, Larry Talbot and the Wolfman worry about. But when he hears that line, that's the one that kind of sizzles his bacon, if you will. And <laughs> it sets out, it sets off the chain of events in that story. And it, it, the end of the song also introduces Dr. Mannering, right? And, and by the mm-hmm. way, there's like... A couple hundred extras in that scene. They first go to Vasek and they make fun of him because, but Vasek doesn't care because he's making a lot of money that night, right? He doesn't mm-hmm, care, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and, but then they go to Larry and the Baroness. There's that one line, and that's that's the one that kind of uh, twirls Larry's, uh, it pushes his button basically. So, <laughs> why would you say that to me? I love it. it. Ex- I, I just, love it too. And, he gets and so by the angry, way, you yeah. know, Larry is a remarkably well dressed man for a gentleman in. Uh, Eastern Europe in the early 40s after escaping from a hospital. But you know what? Uh, of course he is because he's Larry Talbot. He deserves, uh, mm-hmm. given everything he's going through, he deserves to dress however the way he wants to. So how about, how about that? <laughs> Give the man a nice suit. He's been going through a lot. Give him a suit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And you know what? <laughs> if he wakes up the next morning in that really cool icy cellar set and he's got his shoes back on and uh, perhaps a different set of clothes, we're not here to worry about that or question that. We're here to just enjoy the fun in what's a really, really cool monster movie. The song, if I had to distill this movie into anything, I would definitely include that song in that. It it, it brings you in. It's the set piece. Yep. It's, you mentioned all the extras. Yep. The life there, this, this, again, sense of reality that Universal is giving us. This is an actual location that you got to walk around on. I mean, it's... <laughs> I, I did, and it's, it's very funny when you watch the film and they leave the European street in Universal of Landwelly, and then they they have the montage as they sort of go through Europe. There's a couple of map paintings in there, and some some back shots of Southern California in the 40s, and then they wind up in Viseria on the Universal lot, you know, European Street, which is pretty cool. And the the set dressing there is just really really gorgeous. And again, uh, you know, as a 55 year old dude watching that and reminiscing about 
my days with Famous Monsters, a film land in my hands. There was one morning I was eating my cereal and flipping through Famous Monsters, and there's a famous shot of uh, Christopher Lee being impaled. I think it's in the back. And I was eating my okay. Frosted Flakes back when I was allowed to eat Frosted Flakes. I remember my mom just walking by and just whisking that out of my hand. And that's the last I saw of that particular issue of fame. Monsters and moms don't go along very well, everybody, by the way. So uh, <laughs> that, that issue was taken away from me because of the impaling. But I didn't care. I'd already read the, I had already read the issue anyway. So uh, just a lot of sweet <laughs> memories for me. Uh, watching this movie, reflecting back on my career and my childhood. so It's got this sense of instant nostalgia for me. I didn't come to these movies until much later. But when I finally did, man, they just they filled in a monster hole in my heart I didn't know that I had. you know. And, and there's this, this sense of, it's warm. It's a warm kind of embrace, these monster movies, especially the Universals. I agree. Uh, you know, I love the Hammer films. You know, I love what Corman did. I love me the too. movies. I love them all. Really, I have yet to see a monster movie I dislike, but there's something special about the Universal films that feels like a, a hug. Yep. Like I, I have grown to really appreciate the Val Luton films, and on a sort of secondary note, the stuff that was accomplished in Cat People. Instead of the word counter, I'll use the word compliment. As a compliment to the Wolfman, uh, that picture is really astonishing. I really appreciate it. And yet the Wolfman and Frankenstein meet the Wolfman are just the, the sweet swing of my childhood when it comes to all that. I'm also going to say that last thought of, of the song scene, that's the first time we see basically the entire cast uh, together. And it's kind of one of those story moments. The uh, Feast of the Wine uh, song sequences where you see most of the cast together, the story pivots at that point from being just about lawn and larry and the wolfman to being about the monster and everybody else and i've continued to be astonished how easily the previous two uh, films the wolfman film and frankenstein film their backstories are woven in through the story as we go along so uh, you completely understand where you are in terms of the previous two films as the story is being presented to you which I think sometimes I crave when I read like a comic book now or I watch an MCU film or, or, or even some of the Godzilla movies of the 60s and 70s where there's like a shared universe. I crave that deft handling of bringing in the backstory without hitting us over the head with it. Right. I think this movie really got it. Yeah, it's a confident story. It basically says, you know what? We know what we're doing. If you want to keep up, that's great. But we got a lot of story to tell, and we've only got 113 minutes, so here we go. We're off. <laughs> We're off and running. I'm also going to say that I there, there's the sequence where the villagers are chasing the wolfman through the countryside, and I'm pretty <laughs> darn sure that's a redress of the cemetery set of the opening sequence. It does look like it. it and does. I wouldn't be surprised. Yep. I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Yep. It's really cool. And, you know, when you get to the ruins, there's the miniature of the ruins, but there isn't an establishing map painting of the castle close sort of to the castle, if you will. But uh, they stage it in such a clever way that the Wolfman sort of runs through these ruins. There's all these pillars. Some of them look like Greco-Roman and Egyptian, which are just, again, just stuff you grab off the back lot. But who cares? Because it makes for beautiful visuals. And then the mm -hmm. Wolfman sort of runs into in between this in this doorway and he's beautifully framed. Then he just falls through the ground and then he's in the cellar and wow is that set pretty cool yeah when he's underneath the yep. earth the ice and everything it's great absolutely absolutely and that that set i believe is an an l or v-shaped set and then he turns around and he walks essentially toward the camera and behind the camera is where he finds 
the monster buried in ice. At least that's the way it appears to me. Yeah, and, yeah. And just seeing the monster in the ice, it's such a great reveal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the way that Larry right away sort of digs him out of there is pretty cool. It looks like a kind of a wall of ice and he grabs a rock and he sort of hacks away at it. And then there's the beginnings of a beautiful friendship, as, you know, Casablanca <laughs> would say. <laughs> nice. Another aspect of the story is how much of a friendship the monster and Larry have and how you know it's going to lead to an antagonistic ending between the Wolfman, essentially his alter ego, and the monster mm-hmm. as well. It's a nice change of pace because in the previous two films, Igor's using the monster to you know to kill right. people, to take vengeance and all that. Right. So it's a nice change of pace to see that you know he's not just capable of these horrible, despicable things, even though he's got Igor's brain in him. He's not just that. He's able to have a friendship basically this this nice relationship of of the two of them together and i like that too and the the idea that maliva teaches larry to trust and larry then teaches the monster to trust is very cool for me you get that transition not just of empathy but of teaching then that leads to again that fireside scene where you know larry's there and he's sort of got his uh coat over his shoulders and there's the monster so he's looming in the darkness but you know they seem very comfortable with each other they seem very comfortable with each other kind of an added late story development if you watch the baroness the way that she looks at the monster through the story is pretty interesting she's the only one that's like listen everybody you know, I don't know if this is going to turn out very well. And she's very leery of him. And yet Larry, you know, because he's he's Larry Talbot, he's he's like, no, no, I this is my friend. He never says he's my buddy. We're all, all going to hang out and have some beers. He doesn't say that. But he expresses the friendship that he has with the monster mm-hmm. very, very clearly throughout the back end of that story. It's very charming, yeah. actually. Yeah, it, it's very charming. And it's it's almost a through line that carries through the rest of the Monsterelli films where Larry isn't necessarily trying to stop the Frankenstein monster. He's trying to stop Dracula from reviving him and using him for evil. Right. He's trying to stop Neiman from reviving him and using him for evil. That's right. And, you know, he's pre- almost protecting him. That's right. And, and I, I appreciate that too. I do too. And that's another way that us monster kids were able to watch all these films and, and sort of understand that it wasn't just like, see, this isn't just one movie. It's just, it's one gigantic story that's told over all of these other films. And, yeah. you know, is is the mummy in Louisiana or is he in New England? <laughs> we don't need to worry about that. You know, Derek, we don't need to worry about that stuff. OK, it's, it's a very big swamp. It's very, very big swamp. Absolutely. <laughs> it's it's called the Mississippi folks. And maybe, you know, maybe it didn't stretch all the way to New England. But, you know, we don't need to worry about that right now. So, um, by the way, there's the scene in one of the latter movies where uh, the young lady mummy revives herself, and that's right up there in terms of creepiness. Uh, that might be one of the creepiest scenes I've ever seen in a Universal monster film as well. But that's, that's another one of my I favorites. I digress one of my favorites. as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about this movie before we start wrapping up? I feel like we've hit a lot of notes. And again, we could talk for hours about this. I'm sure we've even talked longer about it than the movie actually is, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. It deserves it. Yeah, no worries. There's a shot of the monster and Larry early on where they're walking amid the ruins. And it's my favorite shot in the film. And as they're walking through the ruins, it's kind of a down shot. And it's one that Hitchcock employed in, in a few of his films and sort of explains the vulnerability of characters and it's very sweet 
as they walk through that shot, they walk toward us and they walk to the uh, left of the camera. There's a couple of bats that sweep through the shot. And that's my favorite shot in the film. I, I, I love that shot. I love that shot. I love that shot. And I love that movie. And I recommend it to anyone who's new to this universe. I'm sure people listening to this have already seen the film, but watch it again anyway. It's so good. Uh, like I said, it's like a hug. It, it is. two of the three greatest monsters Universal ever put on screen, or four. <laughs> it, it's just a great cinematic experience. And to see the birth of the monster rally happen here is just amazing. It, it is amazing. Of course, you know, uh, most if not all of your... Your listeners have seen this film, and yet, as an instructor, I've taught myself, you know, to uh, never take anything for granted in terms of when you explain stuff. So I'm hoping, if anything, that a few of my students will listen into this podcast and uh, find an appreciation for this very charming film. Hey, there you go. I like that. Yeah. So, so you are teaching now, still, uh, with everything going on. Are you doing? Like, yeah, a I, I teach at Art Center College of Design. I'm working on a top secret project at Disney at the moment. Um, a lot of fun, and uh, still doing my Age of Reptiles comics for Dark Horse Comics. That's something I've been sort of doing for the past 25 years. It's a labor of love, and we haven't talked a lot about my love for dinosaurs, but it's it's something that. Again, was birthed uh, early on with King Kong, and uh, I enjoy it very much. So there you go. I was going to say, with the, with the King Kong love that you gave us earlier, of course you love dinosaurs. <laughs> you you kind of have to, right? <laughs> you you kind of have to. You know, that's one just one of those films for me that it's a it's a perfect story. One of the things that saddens me is when uh, modern audiences uh, look at black and white films and they kind of say, "Well, you might say that's classic filmmaking, but it's kind of slower paced to me." and I just don't understand the kind of thinking, and I, I feel like if you're a young person and you look at films from earlier than when you were born, you just try to have an open mind and, and just look at the storytelling, whether it's framed in the way that you like it to be framed or the pace is slow or too fast for you or not. Uh, appreciate the story that's being told. I, I think that's a very important thing to state. Yeah, that, that was actually me as a young kid. I was a Star Wars kid. You know, I grew up on Star Wars and things like that, so I – Whenever my mom wanted to watch like a black and white movie on on some classic TV show, like, oh, mom, that's boring. That's black and white. That's so old. Now, if I could right. go back in time and kick that little Derek in the butt, be like, dude, <laughs> you're missing out on so much because absolutely most of the movies I watch anymore are black and white because they're just they said something about them. I try to present them to my students as capsules of that time period. And that, yes. that, that that helps because context always helps. If you just roll it out there and you go, well, there's a movie, you know, then they go, okay, well, I mean, what does that mean to me? But if you start explaining sort of the context and this, the history of cinema as it pertains to how that story is being told, and I, I find that that helps as well. And just kind of one of the underlying themes of what I teach is the the notion that you should always have an open mind, you know, you especially the further we go into this age of information, you know, don't discount, you know, the ability to just because you think something is creepy now doesn't mean that there isn't creepy stuff in those old movies, you know, like mm -hmm. some of the, you know, Island of the Lost Souls, Dryer's Vampire, you know, Nosferatu, you know, I astonished my students the other day when I told them that there's a werewolf in Nosferatu, right? And they were like, well, what are you talking about? And I said, well, look carefully, you know, there's a werewolf in there, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. It's a hyena. It's a hyena because that's all they had back then, you know, and 
and I explaining why there's armadillos and possums and Dracula instead of rats and explaining the, you know, the Hays Code and all that stuff, the ramifications of that. It just helps students to, to understand that, but it also helps, gives them that understanding to appreciate um, these stories. You're preaching to the choir here, man. Again, I'm, I'm just sitting here nodding along. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No worries, man. <laughs> Yeah, no, it it really is. Uh, You know, and and I've said this before on the show, you watch these movies on the one hand. Yeah, they're movies, they're stories. But on the you look deeper and it's it's this kind of cinematic, archaeological, anthropological study because you can learn so much about what was going on in the world and society, what the mores were like, what 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 the rules were like for women, for for uh, non-white men, you know, and and it's all this other stuff going on in these films that you can take away from them. And, and you know, maybe 50 years from now, people will watch a Fast and the Furious movie and get the same thing. I don't know. But, you know, for me, these movies really say so much. I agree. And I think that, that we as a society, we're learning a lot about ourselves during that time period. The idea that you're talking about telling stories set in Eastern Europe during the middle and the aftermath of World War II is also kind of a fascinating lecture that mm-hmm. you can can have with uh, students today. It, it's just one big bowl of information, and I enjoy sort of dipping into it all the time. And that's one of the things that I try to talk about and, and celebrate here on the show, in addition to just you know celebrating the fandom of these things and, and chatting with fellow monster kids about these movies that we love so much. And this has been amazing. I am so glad we finally made this happen. It was certainly my pleasure. You know, first and foremost, I, I just want to say and reiterate that this forum, this show is a big ball of fun and uh, just really appreciate all the different uh, experiences and opinions that I hear on every episode. So uh, everybody else, keep up the fun stuff. I really enjoy it. And thank you, sir, for all this. We'll have to have you back on uh, down the line later later this year. You've got the Dracula of Transylvania book coming, which sounds amazing we'll talk about that in the future and uh, we'll find another movie to talk about i'm sure it won't be too hard to find one no it will not uh whatever it is you know we'll figure it out but more importantly let's talk uh, monster kid stuff from our childhood that's the the sweet spot in all of our baseball swings we just barely touched on ricardo's involvement with the age of reptiles comic book series his upcoming book the dracula of transylvania book which looks amazing we just didn't get into it doesn't mean that I don't recommend it, though. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes. If you want to check out his work, just click through over at monsterkidradio.net. You'll pop over to Amazon through our Amazon affiliate link, and you'll be able to support Ricardo while supporting us, too, because, again, it's an Amazon affiliate thing. I am super excited about having met Ricardo and talking about this movie with him. He and I, (laughs) since we've recorded, have already come up with three or four other movies that we may talk about in the near future. If he brings even half the enthusiasm that he brought to talking about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman to any future episodes, I know I'm in for a treat, and I think you guys and gals will be too. Ricardo, thanks again for being part of the show. Really appreciate it, and I look forward to recording with you again, my friend. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the cat people. Women whose kiss means death whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. Twice I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. Shut, Belle. 
Just a minute ago, it was open. It's locked. Leave, Mr. Hayden. London from end to end. Even Scotland Yard is baffled. But two men of intrepid daring fight back. It's Abbott and Costello at their hilarious best. Battling fiction's most fearsome themes in Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Co-starring Boris Karloff as Robert Louis Stevenson's fabulous double demon. Mr. Hyde will kill him. Mr. Hyde will kill him. With Helen Wesson. Craig Stevens, and Reginald Denny. Bud and Lou are tearing up the town, trapping the beast among a bevy of beauties, adding turmoil to terror in a house of horrors that would frighten even Frankenstein. Come on, we're we can't kill Give me a hand. And what a riot when they get funny notions from deadly potions. Hey, Slim. Well, those guys must be seeing things. Pay no attention to them, they're drunk. You know, there's always a way of... Piggy! Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for downloading the show, for sharing posts on Facebook, for retweeting tweets, just letting people know about the podcast and enjoying the show. And, you know, it just means a lot to know that you guys and gals are out there on the other side of this here microphone. Listening to me ramble on about monster movies for the past, man, seven years. Wow. That's, um... That's something special. Thank you so much for all of your support. You can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. You're going to find links to everything that we talked about here on the show. I already mentioned the Amazon affiliate links to Ricardo's work. You can check that out. You can also find our contact information there. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. You can find links to our YouTube channel, my other YouTube channel, our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter. We are all over the place. We even have an Instagram, but I don't really do a lot there. I really do need to, you know, work on that a little bit. But we are on social media. Just look us up. You'll find us under Monster Kid Radio. We also have a Twitch stream. And I think most people know at this point that every Saturday we show anywhere from five to seven monster movies for free online starting at 11 a.m. Pacific. Go to monsterkidmovie.club to join the Monster Kid Movie Club and watch some classic monster movies with us on Saturday. And then on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, we show a couple of classic sci-fi films. It's all free. 
There's a chat room there, so you can chat it up with your fellow Monster Kids, and it's a lot of fun. So please feel free to join us on Tuesdays and Saturdays when we're showing movies. This upcoming Saturday, I can tell you right now, I'm really excited because we're going to be showing a silent film. We don't do a lot of silent films during the Monster Kid Movie Clubs, but this time around, I'm really pleased. The plan is to show The Gollum. I love this silent film so much. It's one of my absolute favorites, and I can't wait to share it with everybody this Saturday. Again, 11 a.m. Pacific, go over to monsterkidmovie.club. You can enjoy the pre-show, and then at noon, the movies themselves start. And again, like I said, live chat, all free, and I'll chat with you then. There's even an opportunity for you to win a handmade, stuffed-with-character character. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes so you can check that out and see just what I'm talking about. If we see you on Saturday, great. If we see you the following Tuesday, great. But make sure you come back here next Thursday because the next episode of Monster Kid Radio is looking to be a good one. We have returning to the show, my friend David Annandale. And David and I are going to talk about a movie that I have still yet to see. It's one that's been on my list for a very long time. And because I'm recording with him here in a couple of days, I will be watching it for the very first time. I'm talking about the movie, The Flesh Eaters. This is Jack Curtis, director of the film, The Flesh Eaters. If you can't stand the sight of flesh being stripped from a human body, please leave the room. There will be a 10 second countdown. 10, nine, eight, seven, six, five, Four, three, two. These things want flesh, any kind of flesh. And once they sense it, they'll eat their way through anything that comes between them and their meat. No one can escape the Flesh Eaters. Just listening to that trailer alone gets me excited. I feel like I'm going to see something pretty special. Okay, I hope I'm going to see something pretty special and then talk about it next week with David. Later on this month, I hope to have Stephen D. Sullivan back on the show. He's got a project that I want to talk about and promote a little bit. Plus, we have to announce this year's nominees for the Monster Rally Retro Awards. And, you know, I don't do that with anybody but Steve. So I'm hoping to get that worked out schedule-wise here soon, too. I've got so many ideas about things that I want to do here on the show. I know that we've hit almost 500 episodes. I don't think I'm going to run out of ideas of things to talk about for at least the next 500 episodes here, here on Monster Kid Radio. I hope you stick around for the ride. Until next week, remember, the Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. The song Logjam is copyright Chewbacca's 2019 and is from their album The Return from Echo Lake. You can find that album over at Chewbacca's.bandcamp.com. You can buy the entire digital album for $5. Check it out. Let them know that you heard about them here on MKR. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. If I survive the flesh eaters, ciao. (laughs) 